as the children are dismissing, uh, I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the book of 1 Samuel. And we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 5. It's going to take us a little while to get to that passage <laughs> because I want to attempt to I want to attempt to give you some context for it. Before we jump into the text, there's a few things that I want to share with you. Uh, I was struck this past week as I was uh, reading uh, some articles from some uh, different churches around the world. And uh, in one particular uh, publication called the International Christian Concern, or known as the ICC, there was an article, and it was published on February the 11th. 2020. So this is just last month, just a few weeks ago. Let me read it to you. It said, on Sunday, February 9th, 2020, members of a radical Hindu nationalist group attacked a small house church located in India's northern state of Uttar Pradesh. As a result of the attack, the house church's pastor and family were taken into police custody and questioned until 1.30 in the morning on February 10th. The incident, the incident took place in the city of Kampur, located in Uttar Pradesh, according to Pastor Sanjay Raj Singh. A group of 15 members of the Bajrang Dal broke into his private house as the Sunday worship service was ongoing. The Bajrang Dal activists were carrying Hindu idols in their jackets and went on to drop the idols in Pastor Singh's home where they broke on the ground. They started to film the broken idols that they dropped as evidence that I had destroyed the idols. Pastor Singh told International Christian Concern. The angry mob came prepared to accuse me of destroying the Hindu idols. That is the reason they brought these idols and dropped them where the worship was going on. They forcibly snatched the car keys and did not allow us to leave the house for several hours, Pastor Singh continued. When the police came, they also claimed that I used the car for conversion activities. While being held by the radicals, Pastor Singh claims that he and members of his congregation were manhandled, and in addition to this physical abuse, the radicals hurled abusive language at the Christians. As a result, as a result of the false allegations, police arrested Pastor Singh and his family. Police also confiscated Pastor Singh's car, several Bibles, and bags belonging to Pastor Singh. I said that was on the 11th of February, just a few weeks ago, when that came out. The incident took place on the 9th of February. Idolatry is a strange thing. As they walked into this worship service, they carried with them idols. And it highlights the strange nature of idolatry. See, they brought these idols in there. These idols had been placed in a position of power over the Hindu radicals. They were in power over them. And they were put in that place of power so that they could use the idols exactly the way they wanted to. Idolatry is a strange thing. We put things in a position of power so that we can have power over those in power. Odd and strange. But if we look through church history, several comments have been made by multiple uh, pastors and scholars about the nature of idolatry. John Calvin said every one of us, even from his mother's womb, is a master craftsman of idols. 
Blaise Pascal said, There is nothing so abominable in the eyes of God and of men as idolatry, whereby men render to the creature that honor which is due only to the Creator. Tim Keller said, When anything in life is an absolute requirement for your happiness and self-worth, it is essentially an idol, something you are actually worshiping. When such a thing is threatened, your anger is absolute. Your anger is actually the way the idol keeps you in its service, in its chains. Tim Keller also says, idolatry means turning a good thing into an ultimate thing. And just in case we make the mistake that idolatry is just something for the Hindus or something in China or something far off, D.L. Moody, the great evangelist who... uh, did incredible evangelistic work in Chicago. Said, you don't have to go to heathen lands today to find false gods. America is full of them. Whatever you love more than God is your idol. So idolatry is a strange thing. It's an odd thing. We put an idol in a position of power so that we may have power over that idol. Odd. But all throughout history we've seen idolatry rake countries and people groups through the coals. People do odd things for their idols. In today's text, some very strange things happen with idols as well. But I want you to remember that this text is not in a vacuum. Idols don't just exist in this 1 Samuel passage. And idols don't just exist in pagan lands. It's here in America. It's here in Alabama. And far too often it's in our own backyard. Let me pray for us. Let's jump into some scripture. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do love you. Oh, and God, we praise you. And Father, we desire that you are praised above all things in this place. That Father, as we consider the strange, odd, perverse nature of idols, that Father, it would so cause us to hate them. To hate them as much as you hate them, and to desire to cast them aside from our homes, from our lives, and Father, not just throw them off so that we have nothing to look forward to, but throw them off because we see the greatness and the glory of your Son, we recognize the wonderful nature of who you are. Father, we fall more and more in love with you as we cast off our idols. It's in your son's name, Jesus, we do ask these things and for his sake. Amen. I'm going to read this morning's text to us, which is 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to read that text to us, but then we're going to have to explain what's going on before we can deal appropriately with what we've just read. So let me read 1 Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, and then we're going to have to give context to it. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God, brought it into the house of Dagon, and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. 
we jumped into the middle of a story. We didn't jump in at the end of it. We didn't jump in at the beginning of it. We jumped in right in the middle. And it's enough to drive you crazy if you don't know the context. We're going to see the greatness of God in these five verses a little later on. But I've got to explain to you what happened to get to these verses. And it all can be summed up in a child being born, and that child's name was Ichabod. Ichabod is not a good name, was not a happy child to be born. Most of the time we think of children, babies coming, it is a happy, a wonderful and a momentous occasion. The family rejoices. Everyone is excited. Ichabod being born was not good. Let's explain what's going on. If we move back a chapter into 1 Samuel chapter 4, we need to understand that 1 Samuel, these early chapters, is taking place during the time of the judges. Now, you've got... The first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then you've got Joshua, Judges. In the time of the Judges, you had multiple leaders rise up to lead the people of Israel. And when you read the book of Judges, it really is something strange because they start off, well, if you start off in Genesis and you walk through to Joshua, you have incredible leaders. You've got Abraham. You've got Moses. You've got Caleb and Joshua, and these guys are tremendous leaders for Israel. And then when you jump into Judges, you've got some really good leaders up front, but as you read through the book of Judges, they go through a decline. And the leaders, these judges, they stop being as excellent as you'd like for them to be. And here in 1 Samuel, we're towards the end of the judges. And it's one of the last judges. His name was Eli. And Eli was actually a pretty good judge. He certainly was, when you read through the book of Judges and you see the descent, Eli was a bump in the right direction. So we're during the time of the judges... And in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 2, we read, The Philistines drew up in the line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. So you've got these Philistines rising up against the Israelites who have no king, And they're obviously a very worthy foe because they kill 4,000 men in battle and a messenger rushes back to Shiloh, meets with the elders of Israel and Eli. And he tells about the humiliating defeat that the Israelites had just had. So that brings us up to a question. Who were these Philistines? Who were they? We've said the word Philistines... Hundreds of times when reading through the scripture. But oftentimes we don't take time to figure out who these people were. Well, as you can figure out just from these, this, this little bit that we've read, the Philistines were as aggressive, warmongering people who occupied the territory southwest of Israel between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River. The name Philistine comes from the Hebrew word Philistia. And the Greek rendering of the name is Palestine, which we get the modern-day word Palestine. The Philistines are first recorded in Scripture in the Table of Nations, which is a list of the patriarchal founders of 70 nations descended from Noah. That's in Genesis chapter 10. It's the first mention we have of them way back in Genesis. They've been around for a while. For unknown reasons, they migrate from that region to the Mediterranean coast near Gaza. And because they lived so close to the sea, because they were so near the water, the Philistines are often associated with the sea people. 
They built their civilization around five primary cities, Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gath, and Ekron. All these will be on a test later on, so I hope you're taking good notes. The Philistines were known for their innovative use of iron. So here's a clue for us. Their use of iron in their weaponry was superior to the bronze used by the Israelites. So when the Philistines rose up against the Israelites and the Israelites met them in battle, the Israelites had bronze weapons, the Philistines had uh, iron, and they easily overcame their weapons. So here we see the, the might of their military. The Israelites stand no chance with their weaponry. And this enemy, the Philistines, has killed 4,000 men. So, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 3, the messenger goes and tells them, verse 3, and when the people, this is chapter 4, verse 3, and when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Understand the language there. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? The Lord has allowed us to be defeated. The Lord has caused this defeat. Why? And rather than seeking the Lord, this is their statement. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. And then we see verses uh, 4 through 9. We just read them real quick. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you, be men and fight. The presence of the ark of the Lord calls incredible reactions from both the Israelites and the Philistines. The ark of the Lord came, and everyone took notice. So, we have another question. What is the ark of the Lord? The ark was the most important and sacred piece of furniture in the tabernacle and later in the temple. And it bears the name of Yahweh. All right, now let me, let me explain it. So in the Bible, this is a neat little note uh, that, that, that's, that's fun to recognize. If you look here, uh, a good example would be in verse 3, let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord. Do you notice there how... Lord is in all caps. Do you guys, is that in you alls scripture? Do you see how it's in all caps there? Anytime you see that in the Bible, that translation is coming directly from the Hebrew word Yahweh. Anytime you see that, that's the Hebrew word there, Yahweh. Now, Yahweh is a significant name. Back with Abraham, or excuse me, with Moses, at the burning bush, he goes up to the burning bush, he says, and, and, and God says to him, you should go into Egypt, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And he says, who shall I say sent me? And God replies, tell them, I am that I am has sent you. And they recognize that as the name of God. That's Yahweh. They took it so seriously that when they would write out the word Yahweh, they would remove all the vowels. So instead of seeing Y-A-H-W-E-H, you would just see Y-H-W-H. 
You couldn't read it. It wasn't, you couldn't pronounce it. It took the name of God so seriously they wouldn't even say it. They wouldn't even write it down. In fact, this is a complete brief aside. This won't be on the test. But the word or the name Jehovah comes from this word Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, and they took the vowels from the word Adonai and put them in there. So you've got the Jehovah, Yahovah. It's actually, actually a misspelling, but it's, it's, uh, that's where we get that word. So the ark here in the textual clue here, this is something to do with God himself. It bears the name Yahweh. This is the physical representation of the greatness of God. This ark of God, this ark of the Lord coming into the camp means that God's there. And when God is there, there is reason to react. God has come. It is described as the footrest of God. He who sits on his throne in heaven, which is God, uniquely touches the earth on the mercy seat of the ark. And we get that from 1 Chronicles 28.2. Then King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. I made preparations for the building. We recognize that God is on his throne and he uniquely touched the earth wherever the ark was there. The presence of God, Yahweh himself, is here. We better react. The physical representation of God was going to be taken into battle and the outcome was going to be different from the humiliation that came before. The Israelites anticipated victory. The Philistines feared the power of God. Yahweh is here. But I want you to understand, God never told them to take that ark into battle. So 1 Samuel 4, 10 and 11 tells us, the outcome was very different. 4,000 men didn't die this time. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, The ark is here. The presence of God is in this place. Israel's excited, anticipating victory. The Philistines are nervous because God is there. And they march into battle and the defeat is worse than when the ark was brought. I want you to understand something, that as you read this text, this smacks of something wrong going on here. It smacks of something that tells us that God had brought defeat to the people. And so anytime suffering, anytime hardship comes on, anytime difficulty or sickness or setbacks happen, God has placed them in your life designed to make you stop and look to Him, seek after His face. Be diligent in pursuing Him. That's what God designed suffering for. That's what God allows defeat for. Because in those moments, it makes you stop. It knocks the very breath out of your lungs. And it makes you say, I need to know the God of my life who can fix and bring comfort and peace in the midst of all of this. But the Israelites skip that step altogether. And they decide they're going to take the presence of God and they're going to use it almost like those Hindus did. They're going to take it there. They're going to make the presence of God do for them what they want God to do. 
That's not God, that's an idol. So they're even going to take the things of God, the thing that God gave them as a representation of his presence in their community. They're going to take that ark and they're going to treat it like an idol. March it into battle and God, in a dramatic sense, says, No, I will not be reduced to a mere idol. I am greater than an idol. You didn't stop. You didn't seek after me. You didn't look for my plans. You didn't fall deeper in love with me. You decided you would try to manipulate me to do what you wanted to do. And as I told you, this was a sign of the times. They lived in the time of the judges, and Judges 21-25 tells us that in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that included, we take the presence of God where we want to go because we're going to do what's right in our own eyes. so God doesn't play their game. I told you how the calamity that can come is summed up in the birth of a child named Ichabod. We find out that when the messenger goes back and tells Eli what has happened, Eli was an old man. He was, uh, and the Bible tells us he was obese and that he couldn't see very well. And when they came up, he was sitting down and the messenger tells him that your sons have died. Eli doesn't really react to that. But the second that the messenger says, and the ark of God has been captured by the Philistines, Eli falls from his chair. His neck is broken because of the grief by the fall and then when his daughter-in-law Phineas' wife is told your husband's died in battle your father-in-law is dead she was pregnant that the grief of that caused her to go into labor immediately and she gave birth to a son and She named this child Ichabod before she herself died. The name Ichabod has, it's a Hebrew name, Kabod means the glory of God. When you put Ichabod, it means where is the glory of God, or the glory of God has gone. So Phineas's, or excuse me, Ichabod's birth wasn't a joyous occasion for the Israelites. They had taken God, they had used him in a manner he never prescribed for them to use on that day. And suffering and hardship had come. It's kind of a downer when you read these things. You sit there and think, wait a minute, is that, is that the way of it? Is that, is that how it's going to work? Can God be so easily defeated? Just in case there's any confusion about what's going on here, was God defeated by the Philistines? Was there weapons of iron greater than he could overcome? Just in case there's any question like that going through your head, chapter 5. Let's read it again. And as we read it again, recognize God's going to set the record straight right here and right now. First Samuel chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. When the Philistines captured the ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So 
they took Dagon and put him back in his place. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon. And both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. And this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon and Ashdod to this day. Let God set the record straight what's going on. He was not defeated before the Philistines. He was not defeated before the power of Dagon. Something else is at work here. Something else is going on. The Philistines take the ark, the presence of God, and they march him into the temple of Dagon. Well, that leads us to another question. Who is Dagon? Or what is Dagon? Let me explain to you, because once you get into this, the richness of it starts becoming incredible. Dagon was the chief deity of the Philistines. They had several uh, deities, but Dagon's number one. They've got a temple to him and everything. And he was the fish god. And he was represented in all of the drawings that we see. You see him that he's represented almost like, think of him like a mermaid, where the upper half of him is a man and the bottom half of him is a fish. And so there are three places where Dagon is mentioned in the Bible. In Judges 16.23, the Philistines offered a great sacrifice to Dagon, believing that their idol had delivered Samson into their hands. First place in Scripture he's mentioned. Second place, 1 Chronicles 10.10 mentions a temple of Dagon in which the head of Saul was fastened. After Saul was killed, they cut off his head and they fastened his head at the temple of Dagon. And the third place, the last place, is here in 1 Samuel 5. It is worth noting this as well that Dagon also figures into the story of Jonah, even though he's not mentioned by name in the book of Jonah. Now, you, you remember the story of Jonah. Jonah was cast into the water. The fish swallowed him uh, because Jonah would not, did not want to go to Nineveh to tell them of the calamity that was to come. He wanted to flee from there. The fish swallowed Jonah and vomited him out upon dry land, and then he went to Nineveh and proclaimed repent to the Ninevites and the Ninevites repented the Ninevites were Assyrians and they would have worshipped Dagon and they would have had a counterpart uh, the goddess Manshi and so they would have Manshi she, not, not Nancy Manshi if I misspoke earlier I apologize but the Assyrians would have worshipped Dagon. And so the fact that Jonah's walking around on dry land after being spit out by a fish, that wouldn't have been lost on the Ninevites. And so they were ready to receive the message that he had. But these things are important to know because it sets the stage for what's about to happen. All throughout the time that they're there in the Scripture, you see that Dagon is pitted up against God and they are constantly trying to say Dagon is greater than the Israelite God. Dagon is greater than anything that they've got. And here it seems that Dagon has once again conquered. But 1 Samuel 5 tells us no, he is not. They put the ark of God, the representation of God's presence into the temple of Dagon. It would have, they would have put him next to a huge statue of Dagon. And it would have looked like a human on the upper half and fish on the bottom. He would have been a large statue, probably looking as if he's towering over the ark as it was brought in and set in beside him. And I want, I want to bring it up that the Philistines weren't only known for their iron weapons or for their uh, being warmongers or anything. They were also known for their extreme celebrations. So they were excited they had defeated Israel and they put the ark in there and then they're going to go off and they're going to celebrate. 
not knowing what's about to happen. They show up the next morning, and Dagon, the statue, is fallen face down before the ark. What posture is that? What posture is it to be face downward before something? Praise. Bowing. In a very visible and real sense, they show up the next morning and Dagon, their chief deity, is bowing before the ark of God. Maybe in their celebration, maybe someone had knocked it over. So let's set this statue back up in its rightful place to tower above the ark, and let's go celebrate some more. And that's exactly what they did. And the next morning when they show up, Dagon is fallen face downward again. And the Bible says that his head is cut off and his hands are cut off. And this is a dramatic symbol that God is showing not only to the Philistines, but to everyone who knows this account, that Dagon has no life in him. It's the purpose of the head being cut off. No life can be found in Dagon. And not only that, his hands were removed, his hands were cut off, and there is no power in Dagon. Dagon has no life. He has no power, and in fact, he will always bow before the God of Scripture. See, when the Israelites took the ark into battle, they were treating God as an idol. And when the Philistines set the ark beside Dagon, they were treating God as an idol. But when God proved to everyone that those idols have no power and no hands, he would, or that have no power by cutting off the hands and has no life by cutting off the head, he is saying, no, 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 there is none like me. I am no mere idol. I am the Lord, the God of creation. And even other deities cannot stand before my greatness. That is our God. And in this building, don't mistake him for someone we can manipulate. Someone that we can take and go where we want him to go. No, no, no. Our God is a God who will use us in mighty ways. We don't use him in our ways. It's a lesson that they learned in dramatic fashion. The scripture tells us of the unparalleled power of God, Jeremiah 32, 17. Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Job 42, 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 135, 6. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and on earth. Not only do we know of the power of God, but we know that only God gives life. Genesis 2, 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. John 1, 1 through 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. And John 14, 6, praise God, I am the way and the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Except no substitutes, there is no power, there is no life in any other name. than our Lord and Savior Jesus, the God of our faith. And so we see he cannot be compared to any created thing. There is power, there's life in no one else. 
He's not a defeatable God, as the Philistines had thought, and he's not some cheap idol that we can parade around to do our bidding. No, no, no. He is God. So, I want to bring this to where we live. You might have another question. Simply, so what? Or, or how does this appeal to me? Or, okay, do I have idols? And where are they? I want to root it again back in Judges 21-25, which is where these people would have lived at. Remember, they lived in the time of the Judges, and it tells us that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And not only did they do what was right in their own eyes, they used God to justify doing what was right in their own eyes. And so I want to talk about, I want to look in broad strokes, and then I want to bring it closer home to us. Where are our idols? Where are the idols in this world? We don't have a statue of Dagon anymore because he was broken. We don't see those things in America quite as often, although um, Crystal and I went, we had a, a, a day yesterday where we were able to be, uh, we were able to go and, and do some things, and we went to a place, um, it's uh, up north of here, it's uh, close to Huntsville, it's called uh, Ave Maria, it's, uh, it's a place where this monk had fashioned together a lot of statues about things, um, a lot of statues, replicas of famous Christian things. And it was pretty uncanny seeing people pray before those things. So we don't, but we don't typically think of idols like Dagon in our time today. So where are our idols? Where are these worldwide idols? Well, I, I read a story to you early on about the Hindu idols and they were being taken out and they were being cast on the ground so that Pastor Singh could be arrested. They're still out there. There, there are physical idols that are still being used and prayed to today. Go to a Chinese restaurant after church and you're probably going to see a Buddha. There are worldwide idols. What about specifically in the USA? I won't get into this one too much, but in 2 Kings we hear about this false god named uh, Moloch. And they were offering sacrifices to Moloch. And it wasn't just any sacrifice, it was, it was children. They were killing their babies before Moloch. And when you look at the ways that the sacrifices were going towards Moloch, and when you compare it, and I'm not going to do a lot of this, but when you compare it to the abortion scene today, you see a lot of, they're killing their babies for their own convenience. Uh, even Elizabeth Warren, any of you in, in, in the United States. Now this gets a, little, gets a little bit closer to home because Elizabeth Warren's claiming the Bible in this. She's taking the things of God into a battle he never said to go into, just like the Israelites did. She put up on Twitter, she said, my motto ties in directly to Matthew 25. Whatever you do, do to the least of these, my brothers. Whatever you do to the least of these, my brothers, you do to me. And she says that's why she's in the fight for president, to make sure everyone is lifted up. She said that on the heels of voting for uh, abortion. What about, okay, that's U.S. idols, those are people who, and, and worldwide idols. What about, what about, well, we're Baptists, we're all good Baptists in this room. What about, is there any idolatry in, in the Baptist world? Uh, Steve Furtick is a Baptist, he's a Southern Baptist preacher. Uh, he is pastor of Elevation Church, it's the fastest growing Southern Baptist church in America. And he has claimed, and you can go and, and look these up on, on YouTube, he has claimed in two separate occasions that Jesus cannot overpower our unbelief. Did you hear what I said? Jesus cannot 
overpower your unbelief. That's what the pastor of the fastest growing Southern Baptist Church in America has said. And not only that, he also says that God is willing to break his own law. In other words, God is willing to sin because he loves us so much. That's a Baptist preacher. Getting a little bit closer to home. Um, well, what are that, but that's, that's out there still. What about idols in Alabama? Saturdays in the fall, you've got remarkable, grand, huge, massive worship for a little bitty God. In fact, I, I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but it's about a football-sized God. That happens every Saturday in the fall in Alabama. And then many of those people come to church on Sunday, and they've got this great and massive and huge and glorious God, and they give him a little football-sized worship. Louis Giglio said that. What about idols in our own backyard? This one hits me, so understand that there's no one in this room who needs to hear this before me, okay? My little boy, Elijah, is starting to play baseball. Lord, help the coaches that work with him. But as he's looking to play baseball, he, he played fall ball uh, last year, and he's going to start his spring ball here in a little bit. But immediately, last season, our coach looked right at us and said, hey, only games we're going to play are on Sundays. That's it. And I told him, that's, that's, that's a problem for us. We can't make it. And he, he honest to goodness, said this. He said, wait, 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 wait. We'll send someone to get him. No, that's, that's not the point. There was an offer to pray at the games. That's not the point. There was an offer to even, oh, well, we might do a little devotion there at the games. That's not the point. And I've had to talk to Crystal, and she and I have been in agreement that just a game that we cannot play. This year, we've got our schedules, and, and the games will be on Saturday. We had to make a stand last, sem last semester, last year, though, that he'll be at the practices, but he's not going to be at the games. And the reason for that was not because we're holier for being here, but because the reality is such that this is the Lord's day. This is a day where we are given to glorifying God. And that's, that's our point. That's, that's, that's our function. And so we're given to that. Coach didn't really understand, and uh, the other parents didn't really understand. But I, I wasn't as interested in them understanding. I, I, was, I was more interested in being with the family. Sunday. So understand, where are your idols? They're sitting in your backyard. And I might not have spoken specifically to ones that you've encountered, as I've encountered, but they're sitting in your own backyard, and they will be broken before God. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 tells us, therefore God has highly exalted him, talking about Jesus. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Just as Dagon was broken before the presence of God, so will all of our idols. 
None of them have life. None of them have power. And every one of us will bow our knees before Christ. And so this is my statement to you. We live in a land of idols. We live in a world of idols. Every single one of us deals with idolatry. Whether you've been able to pinpoint it yet or not, it's, it's there. People are trying to throw it in your faces and in your life. You will bow before Christ and so will those idols. Today is the day. Not tomorrow. Not next week. Not after baseball this spring. Today is the day. Let me pray for us. We'll sing in a response. And if you have anything you need to give over to God, this is as fine a time as any. Let me pray for us. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do love you and we praise you and we thank you for your word. And God, this is hard because, Father, so often, so often, God, these idols come into our lives and they don't look like a Buddha. They don't look like a statue of Dagon. They don't look like any of those things. So often they look like a football. Or so often they look like a baseball for my son's little league team. Father, so many times we come up against them and Lord, we make the same mistake the Israelites do. We think, well, we'll rather than seeing that the that you've brought us to these places where we need to look and seek after your face. Instead of taking time to stop and seeing how you want us to pursue it, instead of doing that, we decide, well, we'll just take, we'll take your presence with us. We'll pray to you while we're there. Or we'll open up the Bible while we're there and do a short devotion. God, we should never treat you as an idol. And Father, I pray that you would break any idols that we have. Reveal to us, just as you revealed to the Israelites, just as you did to the Philistines, that no idol has power, no idol has life. That, Father, they will be broken before you. And God, we have the privilege and we have the honor of bowing our knees in faith to you today rather than when you break our idols before us. Lift this time up. I ask that you would move. It's in your son's name we ask these things and for us. Amen.